You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 165, and I'm Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this fine afternoon by Todd Pedler, who is an associate professor of physics at Luther College. Todd, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing all right. We've been in classes for four or five days now, and I think my head's above water. So far. All right, all right. <laughs> yeah, you are doing better than I am then. Uh, listeners, you should recognize Todd from our show, The Book of Nature. Uh, if you're not subscribed to that yet, you should do so just as soon as you have finished listening to this one. Also on the line with me is David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things in Texas? Uh, not as hot as they have been of late, but still rather humid. So only um, 105. <laughs> no, no, it's it's actually been pretty doable last uh, last last week or so. It's been raining a lot in the afternoons, and that's been taking the uh, it's been taking the edge off. Uh, classes are going well, getting oriented to life here. It's been it's been good. Very good, very good. Well, listeners, as I tend to do, I'm going to tell you that you should subscribe to the other shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Of course, Book of Nature is a fine program. They're going to be have a, they're going to have another episode here in a few weeks if my calendar don't lie. Uh, don't also lie. Christ, Christian Humanist Profiles is out there, interviews with interesting authors writing interesting books. You've of course got the Christian Feminist podcast uh, and the Pieta Schoolman podcast. Chris Garrett, I am so sorry. I just forgot the name of your show. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> joining the lineup uh, for its first full episode recently is the Sectarian Review with Danny Anderson. Uh, a fun conversation on that one, and uh, there should be another one coming forth, hopefully here in a few weeks. So uh, Most of our shows come out about once a month. This one is the only one, as far as I know, we're crazy enough to do every week. So... <laughs> Load them up on your mobile device, fire them up on your computer, come join the conversation. It's what we do this for. Well, at any rate, our subject matter today, as you know, if you've seen the Facebook page or if you listened all the way to the end of last week's episode, is Plato's dialogue, The Laches. Uh, and Grubbs, I want to dig right in with a little bit of background. Unlike a lot of Plato's dialogues, Socrates only gets involved in the Laches after other characters have a relatively long conversation about their own younger years and their concerns with their sons. So set the table for us here. What about growing up in Athens makes Lysimachus and Milesius so concerned about whether their son should receive infantry training? Well, Nathan, uh, Peloponnesian Wars. Next question. 
<laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Peloponnesian Wars. Um, there's been uh, there's mention in the law case of uh, of the Spartans. They get they get mentioned every once in a while in their furiosity in war, which which makes absolute sense. Uh, this is apparently taking place right in right in the thick of uh, the Peloponnesian Wars. Um, probably in a, in one of those little little times of lull, um, we actually have a couple of famous name people in in this particular uh, in this particular dialogue. Not just Socrates, who you know we've heard of, but uh, the the eponymous Laches and his uh, his friend Nicias um, were also uh, were also famous. They were generals. In the Peloponnesian War, they were also uh, important political figures in Athens, which Peloponnesian War. Uh, the Peloponnesian League, which was led by Sparta, um, uh, a, a league or um, team, axis, alliance, whatever other war <laughs> words you want to use, of uh, of. Poli, I guess, from the uh, sort of south and western chunk of the of the the peninsula that is Greece, uh, they teamed up to beat up on Athens and their allies. And uh, at the end of it, the the Spartans uh, the Spartans come out on top, uh, though you know I I don't have a good sense of when exactly in this conflict. Um, the conversation is happening uh, when this dialogue is happening. But my guess is, um, you know, if Lachis and Nicias are still alive, both of them died in (laughs) late, late in the Peloponnesian war. Um, But there was a period of time uh, called actually the peace of Nicias, peace of Nicias, treaty of Nicias. Can't remember um, in which these two guys negotiated um, terms of peace with the Spartans and things calmed down for a while. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing this dialogue is supposed to be happening in that window. Mm-hmm. Now, well, I think because I noticed something, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you um, that, you know, it, it seems to me that the struggle is still ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I go, you know, if I look in there, there's uh, Nicias himself says that we're in the midst of this particular struggle or, or, or something like this. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure it's peacetime. Per well, se. it's, I, I, Unless I, that, that, I mean, it's seen as a long yeah. an ongoing, ongoing conflict. And even in the midst of it, maybe they would regard it as the being in the midst of the struggle. Right. Well, the, the only reason why I was assuming that this must be a relatively quiet moment is that, uh, Lachis and Nicias are at home. <laughs> True. Not out being killed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're they're at home. They're also uh, two two older gentlemen that the two uh, the two father figures um, in the uh, in, in this dialogue that they they recognize them as public figures. Lysimachus and Milesius see these guys as uh, ones who should be weighing in on the conversation, which seems that they've they've got some kind of respect and reputation i that 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 was just my guess Mm -hmm. also the fact that they've got sons who they see things seem to see are old enough to be of military age but haven't yet actually gotten military training um 
I, I don't know. That was my... That, how, how long a window was this? I'm just curious. Um, War was about 30 years, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a long time since I've since the <laughs> half of a week that a Western Civ survey that I took as an undergrad <laughs> stuff. Um, for the rest of it, I'm relying on introductory paragraphs in thing or side notes in you know whatever other Greek reading I've been doing. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, one thing to note though is that Plato. Um, Plato is not writing from the time that this dialogue is, you know, taking place. Right, right. Zoom. Yep. So he knows that the Peloponnesian War went on. He knows that Nicias and Lachis die. Um, he probably knows that there was actually a later war, the Corinthian War, a little bit later, in which, you know, mm. Athens decided to pick a fight with Sparta again. Um so, you know, I think that all of these things are, are we've kind of got a hold in our mind who these who these men are as they're speaking. The fact that Socrates stomps them, uh, stumps them about the uh, the nature of courage. I'm not entirely certain what we're to make of that in light of the fact that the readers would have known these men by reputation. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I, I mean, mean, if I if I can draw a a parallel. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think it's the same body of questions that we should ask when we read a book like the Gospel according to St. Matthew. You know, mm-hmm. why is it that, you know, these this writer who presumably spent three years with Jesus brings up so many sayings of Jesus about the temple? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that he's probably composing it while Jerusalem is under siege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, I and you know, I, I tend to sort of fall in the middle ground here. I don't think that the Gospel of Matthew is an exhaustive, you know, record of everything Jesus said. I also don't think that you know the writer of Matthew invented it all out of whole, mm-hmm. out of thin air. What I think it probably is is a case of okay, what's on my mind is the temple. Hey, Jesus said these things about the temple. Perhaps I should write them down. Right. Right. Yeah, I I don't know how to I don't know how else to apply this this idea yet to the to the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is a new one on me. But you know, if if as we go, you know, we can see ways of f- figuring uh, this historical ton- context and especially the the reputations of Ni- that Lachesis and Nicias would have had for things they did after this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if we can find ways of working insights of those in, you know, I'd, I'd appreciate it because I don't know what those insights are yet. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. And, and if I could make three quick linguistic points. Sure. Uh, number mm-hmm. one, just because I know Alex P., who is one of our listeners who is a classicist, will probably mm-hmm. hear this recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should go ahead and note that the plural of polis is polis. It's a third declension noun, not a first declension that would take the long vowel ending. Uh, oh, <laughs> number two, I I am probably when I talk about the character going to say Nikias rather than Nisias just because it's a kappa in the middle of his name. <sighs> I, I, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just you know, it, it's my habit. Uh, yeah. And then number three, I just want to note that uh, Dr. David Grubbs did just coin the term furiosity, uh, which <laughs> is a furious virtuosity in combat, and it's not to be trifled with. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <sighs> hey, 
right, I've all said right, that word right. before. That's okay. I, I, I think it's legit. Well, every time, every time, just side note, and this, I guess this is directed directly at Alex. Every time I talk about Greek stuff, I'm afraid of you, man. <laughs> well, well we, we, we all fear Alex. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, head this one off because I actually had the know-how to do so. <laughs> oh. It don't happen often. <laughs> Uh, other 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 reason for why this is probably not a time of like they're right out they're they're all out fighting right now. Um, they're apparently learning combat from professional wrestlers. Yeah, which is, yeah, which exactly. is basically how I see this guy. So yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're not talking about whether to send their sons to boot camp. They're talking about whether to send their sons to taekwondo class. <laughs> I'm, I mean, is that a fair analogy? Yeah. I mean, it's it sounds like this. Well, the, the the people with actual military experience watch this guy and are like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Todd, I, I want to get to the text of the dialogue. So when Socrates sure. is about to enter the fray, Nikios offers the other inter- interlocutors a word of caution about talking with Socrates. And here's the word: Socrates is never happy to answer the question as posed but usually ends up examining the person posing the question. What does that subtle little moment in the dialogue tell us about Socrates, about philosophy, about courage, for that matter? I, um, well, if you don't mind me backing up a little bit, you know, Go before ahead. the invitation, um, and to get a little bit of the text out there, I thought I'd read a few uh, places. But, I mean, it's interesting to me that, that um, and this is new to me, too, I've read, Several of the dialogues. I've never read this one. Um, it's interesting, though, that um, even a little way into the dialogue, it's not yet clear that Socrates is even present until you yeah. <laughs> uh, until you hear it. But but you, you you expect him to show up eventually, like the Spanish Inquisition. Um, oh gosh! But nobody <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, right? But but he, but but he doesn't have much to say until about a quarter or a third of the way in, uh, right? Um, and he doesn't really barge in this time as he does sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's asked for his point of view when these two generals are discussing the training of, of, uh, of these, um, of these sons. And so I'm going to read here, what I'm reading from is, is not the Jowett translation, but it's, uh, Rosamund Kent Sprague, um, published by Hackett in case it's different than what you might. You, you do love the Hackett editions. I love them. I absolutely <laughs> love them. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry, listeners, a little backstory here about the, uh, summer, uh, Kant blogs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any stock in Hackett though. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, so, um, uh, let me just pick up with, uh, Lachis at, uh, at one eighty. At 180B, if you're following along at home, uh, you're quite right, Nicias. As for what Lysim- uh, Lysim- uh boy, I can't do that. Lysimachus has just said about his father and Melissius's father. I think that which he said applies very well to them and to us and to everyone engaged in public affairs, because this is pretty generally what happens to them: that they neglect their private affairs, children as well as everything else, and manage them carelessly. So you were right on this point, Lysimachus. But I am astonished that you are inviting us to be your fellow counselors in the education of the young men and are not inviting Socrates here. I am seeing Captain Renault saying, I'm shocked, I'm shocked to find out you haven't invited Socrates. Um, And it's interesting to me, too, that the boys already seem to know Socrates. So, again, Mm. this is, you know, this is, yeah, it's peacetime. Um, And Socrates is... Uh, uh, you know, out wandering around doing his thing. Um, 
And so, you know, later later on, he um, he says this. Uh, uh, Lysimachus says, "People at my time of life, Socrates, Nicias, and Laches, are no longer familiar with the young because our advancing years keep us at home so much of the time. But if you." <laughs> Son of uh, of Sophroniscus or Sophroniscus, mm-hmm. I'm I'm butchering the names. Uh, have any good advice to give your fellow deemsmen? You ought to give it, and you have a duty to do so because you are my friend through your father. He and I were always comrades and friends, and he died without our ever having had a single difference. And this present conversation reminds me of something. When the boys here were talking to each other at home, they often mentioned Socrates and praised him highly. But I've never thought to ask if they were speaking of the son of of Sophroniscus. So they know him. Um, is this the Socrates you spoke of on these occasions, he says? And the boys say yes. Uh, that's the one boy's line. That's right. Um, and so, so he's, he, he's happy to, uh, to invite him in and, in fact, in, and he begs uh, his indulgence because of the relationship with his father um, and so forth. And so when Socrates enters – uh, and the first things he says, he really doesn't say anything until quite a bit later, but the first thing he says I think is kind of interesting. It's at 181D if you're following. Um, well, I shall try to advise you about these things as best I can, Lysimachus, in addition to performing all the things which you call to my attention. However, it seems to be more—it seems to me to be more suitable, since I am younger than the others and more inexperienced in these matters, for me to listen first to what they have to say and learn from them. But if I should have something to add to what they say, then will be the time for me to teach and persuade you both and the others. Now, when have we heard this before? I mean, this is Socrates being Socrates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he reminds me very much of, of you know, the, the, the sort of long-form story that we get in the, uh, in the apology of sort of his career of, 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 of examining uh, everyone who claims to be wise because he's been told he's the wisest in Greece. But he listens first. No, 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 no. He's told that there is no one in Athens wiser than Socrates. Isn't that what I said? Socrates says he... Ah, but but it's the Delphic Oracle, so it's the ambiguous negative. Indeed. indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't actually say you're wise. Yes. If you cross that river, you will destroy a mighty empire. Indeed. Uh, (laughs) Touche. But it's but, but this method though, this the, this method of Socrates is you know to ask questions right and to listen to what others have to say and then he obliterates what they have to say right or makes them doubt what they have to say which is um, which is certainly more uh, more interesting so he enters the you know he, he enters the conversation in a uh, in a very typical manner at least as I read him um, and. Um, you know, you get the impression here, and you get the impression, I think, in every dialogue, that when, so- when, when, when Socrates is, is, is doing his thing, engaging in his, his style of conversation, you understand why people were ticked and, <laughs> and, 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 and associated him with the sophists, right? Um, because he does, he, he does play – what some I guess might say is a little fast and loose with language to get mm-hmm. you to think about what you're saying, um, and um, so you know Nicias is, you know he's he's absolutely he understands Socrates he know you know he knows of 
this man thinks that Lachish really doesn't get it, um, says you really don't understand who we're talking about here. Um, right one at 187E, is that right? Sorry. There we go. Um, you don't appear to me, uh, Nikias says, you don't appear to me to know that whoever comes into close contact with Socrates and associates with him in conversation must necessarily, even if he began by conversing about something quite different in the first place, keep on being led about by the man's arguments until he submits to answering questions about himself concerning both his present manner of life and the life he has lived hitherto. <laughs> um and he goes on to say, now, I don't mind being questioned by Socrates. There's nothing unusual or unpleasant in being examined by him, but I realized some time ago that the conversation would not be about the boys, but about ourselves if Socrates were present. Um, <laughs> which goes on to happen, right? Um, and so, you know, what I what I get from this as I as, – as I – as I see the way that Socrates enters in and as Nicias um, gives his two cents here, um, and it, I quite, I, frankly, I find this such moments really funny, actually, when, when Socrates is, when, you know, gets somebody's ire up or, or, or somebody makes note of the fact that he's uh, sort of a nosy guy, um, or they express frustration about it. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I, I think he is – I don't know. It's just part and parcel with everything I've learned about Socrates uh, and everything – what he says in the Apology about you know, his role. What does he see his role as? He's the gadfly. He's the one poke. You know, he pokes. He gets in under the skin. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I guess, I, mean, I, guess, I guess my thought is uh, what do we learn? We're, we just we, – we see Socrates being Socrates. I mean we see – that his method, I mean, is understood by Nicias. Um, yeah, I've lost my train of thought, but uh, that's <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. I, I I gather I gather from 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 what Nicias is saying is you know again already wherever this is, Socrates is younger at this point in time. Um, He's already well known. I mean, at least he's known to Nicias as being one who has a particular way with this conversation, and <laughs> Nicias is perhaps concerned that he may, you know, may not quite serve the purpose quite so well. Mm. So, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the only other thing that I would add to that, and I think you've given a good account of how this fits in with the other dialogues, uh, is that one of the things that Nicias does with this little speech before the conceptual part of the dialogue gets going is to lay out what sorts of things they can hope for and what sorts of things they ought to fear in this dialogue. <laughs> and of course, those end up being, I mean, you know, the substance of Andrea or courage as mm -hmm. the dialogue goes on. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's another sign of, of Plato's literary mastery. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, when you read these dialogues, I mean, if something seems like, you know, a, a, a lapse of attention. If you read it a little bit more carefully, a lot of times he's actually doing something very subtle to tie parts of the dialogue together that seem mm. to be entirely unrelated. Mm. Mm. Good. Well, David, Good the, the, the part of the conversation that examines the nature of Andrea, which usually gets uh, translated as courage, is really a fairly compact matter. 
Uh, Ace offers a commonplace concept, as someone has to do in these dialogues. And then mm-hmm. Socrates complicates things, which is what Socrates does, and so on and so forth. Walk us through the assertions and the negations that make up this relatively short conceptual part of the dialogue. <laughs> oh my. Um, yeah, this goes this goes back and forth a good bit. So if I get lost, supply what is wanting. Um, <laughs> if I miss, you know, if I get things wrong, correct me as I go. Um, Lachace starts off by one uh, getting a little bit confused, um, giving his opinion about why fighting in armor is a great idea. But then uh, Socrates brings him back on track um, and says, "No, we, what we need to be asking is not is not the the means, the lesser good of whether or not you need to be learning to fight in armor." Um, but the greater good of courage, uh, courage itself. Um, so he start he starts off. His first definition is uh, that courage is that which uh, that which enables you to stand at your post and not run away. Mm-hmm. All right. And so Socrates immediately gets military on the general. <laughs> and points out that sometimes is it not actually strategic to uh, to to fly to retreat um, before advancing? Um, he brings up Thessians and also the uh, also the Spartans when in during the Persian Wars, which were um, in the days of their grandfathers and fathers. Um, so. Uh, so Socrates, uh, Socrates corrects them and says, you know, standing your ground is not always the, the, the way of, of strategic or military excellence, um, which hopefully courage is something that would always be in accord with, you know, this, this military kind of excellence that seems to be their starting point. So uh, Lachace uh, concedes that concedes his point and then Socrates says no you've you, you I'm I'm th- I'm talking even wider I'm not just talking about the courage of soldiers but also courage in perils at sea or in disease or in poverty or in in cur- in uh, politics um, courage in the face of any kind of pain or fear but also the kind of courage that is necessary to contend against overmastering desires or pleasures that may unman you. Um, this is, uh, uh, the, you know, the, what what lies beneath all kinds of courage, all kinds of uh, manifestations of this virtue. What is their common essence? To which Lachase answers, well, then I guess it's a kind of endurance. Mm-hmm. A kind of endurance of the soul. This must be the universal. To which Socrates responds in a series of questions. Um, well, aren't there kinds of endurance that are foolish? So would it need to be a wise endurance? Um, because you know, is an is an you know an idiot beast. You know, uh, Socrates doesn't use this example, but you know, if we use the proverbial frog in a hot pot, you know, you turn on the pot and the frog doesn't have enough sense to get out. It endures the heat. Is it a brave frog? No, it's a stupid frog. <laughs> All 
All right. So well, when someone brings up that parable, the point is not usually to admire the person who stays in the pot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So a foolish endurance. No, that that doesn't count as courage. But on the other hand, um, says Socrates, would not someone who endures through an engagement of cavalry and yet not having a thorough knowledge of horsemanship, would not that person need to be more courageous? And Lancase admits, yeah, I guess so. In the same case, and he cites some more cases in which the person who has less knowledge of the situation that they're in um, actually seems to be the more courageous person. So, okay, so it's not a... So, Foolish endurance. It's not foolish endurance, but nor does it seem to be a, a category of knowledge because it seems as if those who seem to know less about their situation are actually braver. So, yeah, Lockhase is stumped. <laughs> uh, at which point he uh, he he taps out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Nicias appears to have seen how this how this particular fight is gone. And so he immediately suggests that uh, courage is a category of wisdom. That to be a uh, to be a courageous man, uh, one must have um, the knowledge of such things as would uh, create fear. Um, well, and then uh, he, he is led to say, well, but also those things that are its opposite, because if you know a thing, you know what it isn't. So hope and fear, um, the knowledge of what inspires fear and confidence in war, that would be courage. Well, and then Socrates makes a hash of him as well. Um, <laughs> ultimately, uh, le leading to the idea that, well, if, if courage is... Uh, a knowledge of things that lead to hope and fear, isn't that just another way of saying you have a knowledge of what is good and what is not good? And the person that knows that actually possesses all of the virtues. So it seems as if Nicias has actually argued too much. <laughs> he's, he, he's, he, he, he's made courage too big. Now courage is the master virtue, and it's just another name for virtue. Um, but they had already agreed that courage was the subordinate point. Courage was the smaller category. It was a virtue among many. And so Nikias's definition is just too big. All right. What have I, what have I glossed over that needs to be <laughs> brought to the fore? No, I, I, th I think you've done well there. I mean, Todd, is there anything that you would add to that account? Uh only my recollection of the funny interchange between Lachis and Socrates when 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 uh, when Lachis says, "Well, that's the nonsense he talks," and Socrates says, "Well, let's instruct him instead of making fun of him." <laughs> 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 like, Lachis seems I mean, I, to be having a, a lot of fun now that he's not at the receiving end. Of well, he's not on the hot seat, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like it's like class. It's yeah. first. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh man. Uh, I mean, if I would make any kind of comment about this particular conceptual chunk of uh -huh. the dialogue, um, it's that uh, 
well, Todd, Todd was saying this, uh, well, uh, yeah, I think Todd was saying this earlier that sometimes he seems to, um, he seems to play a little more loosely. Socrates does in his, in his arguments. He, he it, it's, he seems to be playing with language in particular ways, which, you know, not that paying careful attention to our language, um, isn't often the thing that leads us to wisdom, but, uh, there are definitely points where I think readers may sometimes feel as if Socrates is um, playing with loaded dice, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he 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 seems to be just clever enough to yank the rug out from under these guys, and you're not always certain whether or not there might have been a better rejoinder to what he says than what they say. But it seems to be just enough to move the conversation along, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes good sense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Anyhow. <laughs> well, well, listeners will probably note, if you listened well to David's account, which you should have, that <laughs> this dialogue, like the Euthyphro and some others, ends with the conceptual question standing open and Socrates not necessarily finishing the conversation so much as he moves on in his life to become the tutor to the young men we discussed earlier. So, Todd, does this sort of ending do any philosophical work, and if so, what sort? Hmm. Um, well, since, since you brought up the Euthyphro as another, it's, as another good example of this kind of open-ended, uh, unfinished dialogue in some sense, um, where the last words leave us recognizing that Socrates hasn't answered the question but left it open. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the Euthyphro is discussing the definition of piety. What is it that it distinguishes piety from impiety? And it, it ends I – re I remember this one well. It ends rather comically, I, I believe, with Socrates saying, I'm so disappointed. I had hoped you would show me the difference, but you've let me down um, to Euthyphro. <laughs> you guys – <laughs> yeah, that's right. Come on, um, but this is just this is my brief take, um, and I'd love to hear your follow up to it. I mean, I, it seems to me these repeated unfinished questions, and there are a number of them, mm -hmm. as you say, do exactly the sort of work that Socrates is best known for, which is leading his conversation partners partners in an exercise that ultimately results in further self examination under. A mounting army of questions that keep arriving continuously, mm -hmm. and leaving the central question unanswered, we're left questioning ourselves or our commitments or our take on the question at hand. And it seems to me that's really central to Socrates's usual method. I mean, he he and Plato surely are very very deeply interested in guiding people to grapple with the questions of what is you know what a virtuous life is. Mm -hmm. um, how ought life to be lived? Um, and so they're deeply in invested in questions of virtue and the virtuous life that follows from from striving after virtue. Um, and I, again, I go back to the apology, um, and I'm sorry for bringing it back up continually. No, I don't but apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so I shan't. Um, where we see the story of one who who believes that the heart of wisdom is found in seeking out deficits of one's own knowledge and wisdom and recognizing them for what they are and continually refining. Mm -hmm. um, so if Socrates had given a pat answer to the question, what is courage, 
I think his purposes for his students and Plato's purposes in actually writing this down for the reader of these accounts would be less likely to be satisfied because we'd all say, well, why is Socrates? You're so right. And accept his definition or be, be at least tempted to and be done. And I think, you know, rather than being continually scratching our heads as 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 I think Socrates likes to have us be doing, um, as we explore a given question, um, saying, now wait a sec, um, no, but what if this, what if that, then what does this mean then? Um, I think although it frustrates modern readers and modern mm -hmm. students for sure um, to have questions like this unanswered, and I suppose sometimes modern faculty who are teaching these things, um, the ending of the dialogue <laughs> is, I think, just brilliant. Um, because it leads, it leaves us where oftentimes the interlocutors of Socrates are left. Mm -hmm. That's my two cents. Well, I, I think that's what he's. I, mean, I think that's what it does. I don't know. I don't know further. Um, because what do I do? Uh, you know, what what what, what have, I read this for the first time last week. Um, all right, I'm I'm now going to go back and dig in again and see where the questions that Socrates asked. Um, leaves me, mm -hmm. and I think that's by design. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, David, would you add anything? Well, confirming confirming what Todd says, um, the, the the constructing it this way encourages the encourages those who are reading to continue the conversation themselves. Um, you know whether you're you know, at home reading it alone and then you keep thinking, okay, what is courage? Because I've just gotten a whole series of things. It's not. Um, but also it's, it's, I think it's clever. It, it's constructed. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know Plato well enough to think, uh, that, that I'm, I'm necessarily seeing something he's doing, but at least for me, when I see Socrates make a move, that seems to be more rhetorical than properly analytical mm -hmm. that I note those and I think, okay, how would I, what, in what way would I have made a rejoinder to Socrates and might making that rejoinder have pointed me towards a wiser way to articulate this mm -hmm. than, than is going on in the dialogue already. So, mm -hmm. you know, leaving it unsettled, um, encourages you to keep thinking about it, but also some of the particular ways that it unsettles your notions. Um, I think you're, you, you, you're, you would do well to, to, to read the rhetoric closely, read the analysis closely and say, okay, where might I have said something differently? Where if I was in, uh, Lockie's place or Nikki's place, where might I have, um, pointed out, but Socrates, you've missed an important distinction between mm -hmm. categories, and having made that distinction, maybe we will have actually taken a step forward, mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what both of you guys are saying, I mean, points to a conception of philosophy that, you know, certainly Plato and Socrates share, and I mean, really, I mean, a long tradition running up through the Stoics and Epicureans that mm -hmm. philosophy is not necessarily a body of subjects and predicates that you memorize to reproduce on an exam, but that mm -hmm. philosophy is actually a way of life 
wherein you pose questions verbally so that in the way that you order your life, you answer those questions. Mm. And so, you know, mm. the, the, the idea is not to come up with a dictionary definition, which is what my students want to do. Aha, I've solved <laughs> the, I've solved the lock case. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, you know, I, <laughs> <Huzzah>. <laughs> 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 and, I, and I say, no, 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 infant. That's, that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't call them infant more than a couple times a semester, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now it's your sweet the young. <laughs> well, because you know, you're so much older than them. It's been a long time since you've had anything to do with the young. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Oh, bless nice. your heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I think that both of you guys are heading in the right direction in that leaving it open allows for philosophy to continue happening after the text of the dialogue ends. And that's mm-hmm. exactly the point of a text like this. Mm-hmm. Well, David, I, 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 our, our listeners love when you get medieval, so I'm going to give you a chance here. <laughs> Uh, listeners who know very much Plato probably aren't surprised to hear that for Socrates, courage is probably a species of wisdom. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I want you to go ahead and get medieval on us for a minute here. Talk about one or two conceptions of courage from the Christian era that stand as alternatives to the, what I see as fairly cerebral version that we see in the Locke case. Mm-hmm. Uh, just two um, to bring up. Uh, one uh, one is not medieval, but patristic. So I, I, I didn't go that I didn't go too far into the Christian era. Um, the other is medieval, so you know, kudos. Um, first is Athanasius in his On the Incarnation of the Word, in which one of his arguments for the resurrection of the Christ. One of his one of his uh, his arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the courage of martyrs in the face of death. Um, that the Christian martyrs, when uh, confronted by the authorities with the choice between surrendering their faith and surrendering their life, they choose to surrender their lives, and they do it not because. Um, not necessarily because they have a principle which they consider to be um, to be clung to that is greater than life, which they do, but also because they believe that death itself has been conquered, mm-hmm. uh, and that is the you know that's what the resurrection does. So um, this is you know it is an indication. He says it is an indication of the savior's savior's victory over death. When boys and young girls who are in Christ look beyond this present life and train themselves to die. Uh, everyone is by nature afraid of death and of bodily dissolution. The marvel of marvels is he who is enfolded in the faith of the cross despises this natural fear. And for the sake of the cross is no longer cowardly in the face of it. So, you know, here the courage the courage of martyrs is cited as an evidence for the truth of a proposition. Mm-hmm. Christ is raised. Um in that case, I, and I'm thinking now of Athanasius in conversation with the Lachaeus, which 
I have no particularly good reason to think what that Athanasian was, Athanasius was thinking about the law case. Um, but I am. Um, when I look carefully at Athanasius' uh, presentation of the courage of martyrs, um, it does seem to be a species, if not of wisdom, a species of knowledge that Christians know something and that that thing that they know permits them to reassess um, uh, to to assess what is important um, in life, what choices are the wise choices in ways that um, those who do not believe those without that faith would not assess it all right so from the from the perspective of the Romans who are you know, coating them with pitch and burning them for garden parties like Nero did. Um, from the perspective of those folks, the Christians are exercising a foolish endurance. Mm-hmm. Um, but Athanasius says, no, in fact, that's wrong. Um, the fact that they are exercising this endurance um, sh- should lead you to see it uh, as an indication that they know something you don't. Um, and because martyrs continued to be in incredibly important within um, the Christian faith throughout the rest of the of the late classical period and into the Middle Ages. Um, I, I'll, I'll say that counts as medieval. <laughs> um, my other example of uh, my other example of courage is from the Battle of Malden. Mm. Uh, Battle of Malden, uh, classic old English um, uh, old English poem. Which, uh, though the Lachis uh, appears to be finished, it leaves you hanging. Um, Malden also leaves you hanging because uh, it's 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 a fragment. We don't we don't know exactly how the poem ends. We know how the battle ends. The battle ends with all of them dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this is this is a last stand. Um, and in fact, this is a species of uh, this is a species of courage. Like that, which um, I believe, if I remember correctly, that Lachis himself demonstrated. I believe he was he was killed. Um, he was killed in an, in an, in the losing side of a battle. Um, but uh, in this particular instance, you have um, the thanes of uh, an Anglo-Saxon um, lord, um, an earl by the name of Birknoth. Who is confronting some um, some Norse raiders, some Danes, some Vikings who are coming to sack the local village or whatever? Um, and they they offer to accept gold and go away. These Vikings do, and Birknoth um, Birknoth will have none of that. He's the only tribute you'll get is my spear in your face. Um, <laughs> That's kind of a loose translation of yeah, things. Yeah, the, but there says. really is some glorious old English smack talk in that poem. <laughs> oh yes, 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 there is. Um, now there is debate about whether or not um, Birknoth is actually exercising a foolish endurance, <laughs> a foolish courage. Um, uh, it, at one point, it's said that f- uh, for his offer mode. Um, he he lets the uh, the the Norse raiders. Um, take a uh, uh, a more tactically um, defensible point than they'd been earlier. Otherwise, they would have had to fight their way um, on, uh, on across a ford. Uh, but he permits them to cross without um, without preventing them. 
Mm-hmm. And a very um, narrow ford that would have let his soldiers confront the larger force. Yes. In terms that would, mm-hmm. yeah, like David said, would be tactically mm-hmm. superior. Yes, he he would have he would have actually been meeting an invading force that was coming through a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Precisely, <laughs> precisely. All right, and for his Ofer mode, because of his uh, or weaning pride, as 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 it's sometimes translated, but <laughs> though that's something that gets debated, um, he he permits them to do it, um, and so he's sometimes regarded as a as a as this is unwise courage. Um, however, uh, even after he falls. His thanes fight to the end, mm-hmm. um, because uh, because of the loyalty that they bear to their lord. And as you know, as the bodies are falling, as it's getting worse, um, one of the old warriors, Birktwold, different guy, Birktwold, follower, old Birktnoth, leader. Um, Bertwold grasped his shield and spoke. He was an old companion. He brandished his ash spear and most boldly urged on the warriors. Mind must be the firmer, heart the more fierce, courage the greater as our strength diminishes. So, you know, even as they are losing, he's saying, because we are losing, uh, we have a duty and so our courage should hold the firmer as we, as our physical resources dwindle that's you know that's that's the time for courage um uh the old english here shall ya hirdra hirta this uh hirta the chindra mood shall thamera theura magen littleth you know as our strength diminishes courage must be greater so I don't know if that's wise courage or not. It's certainly inspiring, <laughs> mm. and uh, I, I, I don't know if if uh, if Socrates had been asking an uh, an Anglo-Saxon to be defining courage, they probably would have come out with something on that order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What have you guys got to throw in the hopper? Well, I mean, mm. just with just with uh, Battle of Malden because you know that's one that I've taught a few times. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it really is one of those things where I, one part of the poem that you didn't highlight, but mm. really casts into relief the fortitude of those who remain, is that you actually have a significant portion of the army who deserts in the middle that's of the true. battle. Yeah, and in fact, one of them goes as far. And I mean, this is one of those things that I mean is on that strange borderline between, uh, you know, heroic grandeur and wily coyote. But uh, <laughs> one of them actually steals the king's horse and rides off with it so that yeah. one entire wing of the army thinks that the king is fleeing and takes off. Yeah. So I, <laughs> you know, so, so the fact of the matter is that by the end of the fragment that we have, uh, you know, which ends with one of my favorite old English double negatives, uh, because the man who ran off with the horse was named Goodwin, but there's another Goodwin who stood and fought, and the last God, line of the God, fragment Godric. is... Was it Godric? Godric, yeah. Oh, I thought it was Godwin, I'm sorry. So, so at any rate... He's uh, the one with the law. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, the, the last Hitler. line is is roughly translated, that Godric didn't ever run from no fight. <laughs> yeah, that's the Nathan Gilmore yeah. revised translation. Oh yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, I mean, honestly, I love teaching that poem because it ends with that double negative and it makes English majors twitch. 
Yes. <laughs> Splendid. For good purpose. For good purpose. <laughs> yeah, just like you. Uh, so, mm. well, Todd, I, I want to, now that we stepped into the Christian era, I want to take a, a sidelong step and shift context since we've got you, one of our Book of Nature friends on the show. Uh, for Socrates, at least in this dialogue, courage tends to be the virtue of the warrior. And he doesn't move very much beyond the battlefield when he talks about courage. That said, I mean, I think that there's room in this dialogue to imagine courage extending beyond warfare. So in what ways does courage make sense as a term of praise for a teacher of science or a scientific researcher? Um, and, I, you know, I was going to actually reflect on this question in, in terms of the breadth of what Socrates insists, you know, courage does encompass. Because he does go, I mean, he does go somewhat beyond the, the realm of the warrior and, and is, is prodding Laches to consider something beyond, uh, right? Uh, and, and David already quoted from this concerning those who are brave uh, in dangers at sea and those who show courage in illness and poverty and so forth. Mm -hmm. So he's he, – and, and, and so he guides the discussion to the point where they're going to discuss the commonalities, right? So I think it's um, – it seems to me that Socrates is, is digging at – and you see it more in, in other places perhaps. That Socrates is really digging at um, something that's common not only to the warrior but others in many, you know, many ways and many walks of life. Um, and Laches, for sure, is 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 concerned with the traditional conception of courage being associated with soldiery, um, and, and so forth. So, um, if I go outside the bounds of this particular dialogue, though, and take what I know of Socrates, coupled with his way of questioning here and where he really guides them, um, I would say maybe the way that Socrates talks about courage is the resolve to seek out and stand in, in a moral center and whatever the costs stay within that boundary, within those boundaries that virtue demands, and regard with less weight or no weight that which is, which is irrelevant or amoral. Um, it seems to me that – and correct me if I'm wrong – but it seems to me that courage can't really easily be separated from moral – from moral questions, mm -hmm. um, seem, seems to be tightly wound up with virtues such as integrity, and the like, um, rather than in such things as the practical wisdom of the the liar player uh, that's mentioned uh, that's mentioned here. Um, and when I look uh, at um, at the man presented in the Credo and the Apology, I see someone steadfastly refusing to be concerned about things he doesn't fear. So he's resonating there actually with what Nicias has to say about the knowledge of what is to be feared and and, and, and what is not to be feared. Um, and and acting accordingly, right? I mean, that's I guess that to me is, is, is something that I, I see as is, is important for, for Socrates, not only just to be able to know what is the difference, but to act on it. Um, so courage is a, moral, it's a moral virtue for him, bound up in, in this – in maybe what we would say is a steadfast integrity connected to moral and ethical concerns. And in that broader sense, um, Socrates' view – presuming it's Socrates' view, at least as I've summarized it – is readily, I think, applied to what I do as a physicist, what I do as a scholar, and, and certainly as what you two do as professors of English, but, but let me – specialized to sciences. Um, it seems reasonable to point out, I, I think, that uh, 
yeah, again, if you're not listening to the Book of Nature, we did cover the virtues of scientists in, I think it was episode six, a few back. Um, and we had a pretty good discussion there on 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 this this topic. Um, so what does it mean? What does it mean to be courageous as a scientist? Um, if I want to take the approach that courage involves wisdom concerning what is to be feared and what is not to be feared and acting accordingly, then there's a number of things that I could point to. Um, I came up with a list of three like the laws of thermodynamics, and then I decided I should add a zeroth law, just like they did in the 20th century with the laws <laughs> of thermodynamics. So the zeroth law, what's the zeroth law? The most obvious thing, don't falsify your data. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not a massive problem, um, but it's big enough that papers and books are written about it, and, um, and actually on the Book of Nature, we'll be taking this question up of um, dishonesty in science. Um, after our upcoming episode on Pluto. Um, so falsifying data has a much larger effect than simply your own hide. Um, it damages the scientific process in general and the reputation and perception of the scientific community by those outside. The rewards can be very significant, uh, but the damage done is an evil that greatly outweighs it. And so it takes courage uh, more for some than others. Uh, I don't have too much of a problem with falsifying data, I don't think. Um, but it's tempting for many. Um, and it takes courage to resist the temptation to fudge the numbers. Um, secondly, uh, or the first law, I guess now, since that's the zeroth law, the most obvious one, um, is, and it's somewhat related and much more of a temptation, I think, for most scientists, don't claim more than the data you've taken allows. Um this is a place for courage to be implied for sure, uh, employed for sure, because oftentimes it's quite advantageous to be able to claim a first observation of something. Uh, first observations are published generally in the most prestigious journals and get the expected accolades. Um, but you have to be very careful not to claim observation of something when the data don't really warrant it. Um, in particle physics, uh, in which I work, um, we have pretty stringent tests and community, you know, scientific community standards that, that help a great deal here. It's generally agreed that results have to pass a particularly high level of what we call statistical significance before they'll be publishable as a first observation. That said, those same standards, which help in setting a uniform expectation for what one might claim as the observation of a new state of matter or something, um, that the editors and reviewers of journals uh, will consider, you know, you have to pass a certain level before they'll, they'll, they'll publish something that claims observation. That Because there's this numerical standard, um, it's tempting to fudge things just a little bit, not really falsifying your data, but falsifying your interpretation of the data. And... Um, and say, oh, yes, well, this is, you know, the, such and such significance and so forth. Um, again, ob it may seem obvious, but, I, you know, for scientists, this, this is a temptation that is actually real. I mean, um, to publish in physical review letters, which is the, the top journal for physics – uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for you. So when you're tantalizingly close, it's it takes a little bit of courage to stand and say, you know what, I can't I can't claim observation. I'm going to have to publish this elsewhere. I'm not going to be able to claim observation and so forth. Um, 
Another way where this comes in, perhaps, since we live in a publisher parish kind of field, um, embellishment of personal records for seeking funding or, or while seeking mm. funding or employment, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I worked on that paper, so I'm going to claim it as a prize. You know, I'm going to I'm going to claim it. I, I had a significant role in that paper. I'm going to put this down on my CV. That's a very easy thing to do, mistakenly, and there's a great temptation to do it because you want to claim a particular level of publication activity, and uh, I think it takes courageous to it, it takes a courageous person to avoid doing that and just say, you know what. I'm going to let it fall as it is. These are the ones I'm really committed, you know, that I truly was involved in at a level where I can sort of claim myself as a primary author and be done with it. The last one that I came up with as I was thinking about this is what one of one of the one of the important roles that scientists have for each other is reviewing other papers or reviewing proposals for funding and so forth. So where does courage play a role there? It's twofold, I think. Don't be harder on a research result than it deserves, especially if it's coming from a competitor. But also don't be too lenient on a paper um, than it deserves either. Why do I say that? Well, the scientific process really is served best by good, solid, well-documented, well-established results getting out there into publication and neither end you know you, you know you you don't want to deny the the solid results for poor reasons but you also don't want to prop up those that aren't quite up to snuff um and for various reasons you may be tempted to do one or the other and i think the courageous scientist is one who stands firm and acts with integrity in that review process um so, what about teachers of science? I couldn't come up with anything particular that would be true of teachers of science as opposed to teachers of other fields. You know, some of the things I've talked about, about about reviewing results that applies to our evaluation of student work. Um, again, you don't want to be be too hard on on someone or you don't want to be too lenient on another because it doesn't serve them well. And I guess the bottom line here is is all, all of these things come down to doing things with integrity, you know, within the standards of your very, uh, of your various communities, whether you're speaking of faculty or whether you're speaking of science uh, of scientists. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah. I think what's interesting there in that account is that, as you talked about, you know, the life of the practicing scientist, I mean, you arrived at the same sort of thing that Socrates does in this dialogue, namely that courage is not only a species of virtue, but it also requires other virtues. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So that, I mean, I, I think it reflects, you know, Aristotle's later contention that, you know, virtue is ultimately a complex unity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think, mm -hmm. David? No, I think those are um, I, I think those are good examples. Um, you know, because uh, I, they, they might not. Uh, I don't feel the same kinds of weight about some of those things that Todd does, but I do feel you know I do still feel the weight of you know I'm a scholar. I had to write a dissertation. 
um, I had to say things that I then had to stand by. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, now for, for us, uh, for, for, for lit guys, standards of evidence and what things you can say and not say with how much assuredness, um, we might draw the lines in different places. You know, like mm-hmm. Aristotle says at the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, don't, don't demand of a particular science more <laughs> specificity mm-hmm. than it actually is capable of. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I feel the weight of those things. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps. It, I think it helps to see um, this endeavor as an endeavor that requires courage. And mm-hmm. and that, and it's not just a. Um, it's very easy to lose the battle in your soul when you don't see it as a battle. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. <laughs> very good. So. And and listeners, I just want to you know, refer again to what Todd already mentioned. There is an episode of the Book of Nature, uh, specifically about the virtues of the scientist. It was a fine discussion. Um, I, I recommend you go download it. Indeed. Well, guys, I, I'm, I'm looking at the clock, and we are coming up on time, which is to say I've got to teach a little bit later this afternoon. So, <laughs> David, we've stayed relatively focused on this text today, and I'm not sorry that we did. But I do want to give us a chance here at the end to build a bridge to late modern Christian life. What questions or wisdom or interesting negative exemplar or other help does the law case offer to late modern Christians? Uh, we'll start with you, and then we'll go around the horn. Maybe this is the low-hanging fruit, but um, I'm going to take a swing at uh, at our armored fighting exhibitioner. Um, uh, oh, what was his name? It started with an S. Anyway, it's immaterial. Uh, <laughs> all of this conversation begins as two fathers and their two sons have asked to meet uh, a couple of these two famous generals, Nicias and Lachis, uh, at, at an exhibition of armored fighting. And so with, with the idea that they will learn something from this that will then help them to be good soldiers, which they've not been adequately trained for. And uh, the funny thing, though, is that, uh, as, as, as Lockes points out, that this particular guy that they've just watched um, – wait, was it Lockes? Not Lockes, it was Nicias. Mm-hmm. Um, or was it – was it? anyway, can't remember. One of the generals <laughs> knows this guy, knows, the, knows the, the armored fighter guy, knows he's actually not all that. Um, he's seen him fight in an actual battle in which he made kind of a goofball of himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. All of that to say this courage is in our current context, a f- frequent theatrical subject. Um, we are surrounded by, often see on the news, on the covers of magazines and so forth, persons who are meant, to, who, who are being put forth as exemplars of courage in various ways. Um, you know, this person was courageous when they did that. This person was courageous when they did that, whatever. Um, not all of our modern exemplars of courage have a right to that claim. 
not all those who claim to be teaching the art of that particular species of wisdom and endurance, because I think both Lachesa and Nicias are a little bit right. Um, not all of our modern exemplars um, are good exemplars. Some of them are more like the Greek professional wrestler <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who they watch at the beginning. So uh, I, I think one of the one of the, the the bridge that I would like to build between this dialogue and and modern life is to ask some of Socrates' questions about courage when someone says, "Look at this person; they are courageous," mm. and ask, um, "Is this a foolish person who just doesn't realize what they've gotten themselves into, or are they really being courageous, or is it just good sense?" You know, have you conflated courage with other virtues or, you know, other things? Hmm. Um, I think it's worth, uh, I, I think the law case is worth bringing into modern life for that reason. We're surrounded by, we are surrounded currently by not great exemplars. And we should submit them to the same kind of scrutiny. Hmm. Todd, hmm. what do you got? Uh, well, I got I've got one thing, but I want to follow up on that because that I, I that may have been low hanging fruit, but I missed it, <laughs> and I I, I I like it I I like it and in, in, in let me just add this add this other twist. I think we should be open to seeing courage where it's not normally celebrated. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the courage of the single mom with the four kids. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, life just to live and raise those kids well takes so much courage, much more than I have. Um, And oftentimes it's the – you know, those people are not celebrated. They're not even seen. You don't even notice them. Um, And I think it's a good example. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we as we consider what courage is, and 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 this dialogue certainly helps us think about these things. I think, you know, seeking to have our eyes open for that kind of courage too, um, not just to knock down the false courage that we see, mm-hmm. is I think useful. Um, so thanks for that. I that that's a thought that I had hadn't occurred to me. Um, but I, I actually had something written down that I thought was pretty low-hanging fruit, so here we go. <laughs> We're just going to have to depend on Nathan to give us something substantive. Um, so, I, but I, you know, I think these are these are specific to the law case, but also, you know, the Socratic dialogues in general um, have this kind of feature, and, and, and that's this. Um, don't hold so, highly on, uh, so tightly on to things that you know and aren't willing to explore a revision to your understanding. Um, like courage, I think we all know what it is, but we don't know how to define it. Um, I think we all know what uh, this Christian virtue or that Christian virtue is, but do we really? are we really willing to, to consider further than just the pat giving of a, a definition or an answer? Um, and connected to this, I think, is a willingness to submit to the scrutiny of a questioner of mm-hmm. those ideas, mm-hmm. um, whether that's a, a uh, one who is not a believer asking questions about Christian doctrine or asking questions about your life as a Christian. Are we willing to have those questions asked? 
And not even not just when it's somebody who's one who we're sure has our best interests in mind, but maybe even those who we're not so sure uh, about, or so you know, or, or who we have ideas as Nicias did about Socrates. Um, are we willing to stand and answer, um, and stand by our answers? Um, to those questions. So, you know, both the willingness to rethink and the willingness to have people ask questions. I think a lot of times, especially for Christian students, they'd like to avoid that. Mm-hmm. They, they don't, mm. they don't want to go there. Um, and I, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a means toward growing in one's faith. Go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> well, I'll go ahead and take it home then. Uh, I've actually got two little bits. One of them is uh, one of the places where ultimately the French and then certain urban dialects of English have it better than the Greeks do. So it's not hmm. often you hear me saying nice things about the French, but this is one of those categ- one of those moments. <laughs> uh, the Greek word <laughs> that we've been talking about this whole conversation is Andrea. Uh, which you could reasonably translate as manliness. And so, you know, in that Greek vocabulary, this characteristic, this wisdom, this endurance is something that is associated very strongly with one sex rather than the other. And in Mm. fact, if you read around very much in Greek literature, you know, one of their favorite words for cowardice is being womanish. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's one of the places where the French get it right, because instead of associating it with a gender, the word that they give us is associated with anatomy. Uh, it is cour, courage, heart. Um, that just strikes me as a better metaphor for whatever moral reality we're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason I bring up you know urban dialect is that you know in a lot of uh, especially film and television and literary representations of urban dialect. People will talk about this or that character having heart. And, you know, that, that strikes me as a good way to really pretty straightforwardly translate courage. Uh, you know, do you have the heart to stand where you are and do what's right? Now, that's the, that's the lexical point. The other point that I would make uh, is, you know, related to what Todd said, namely that, you know, part of ethics is not necessarily the living of the good life, but like I said at the outset or earlier in the conversation, it is posing the questions that allow us to live certain ways of life as the answer. And I Mm. think the most interesting questions going on in this dialogue have to do with what it is that we hope for and what it is that we fear Mm-hmm. And I want to bring that uh, specifically to the Christian college. You know, it, it, it's a place where a number of us who host these podcasts teach. Uh, so it's a place where, you know, I, I, I dedicate a lot of my own thought life to what the Christian college is. And one of the things that, you know, Charles Taylor does very well is he says, don't think about things in terms of concepts and worldviews. Think about them in terms of social imaginary. So as we envision what a good life is, and at least part of that envisioning has to do with what we hope for and what we fear might happen. What is that picture that we hold forth? What is that picture towards which we strive? And uh, among you know younger writers, you know James K. A. Smith has done better work with this than just about anyone I've read. 
-hmm. he says that one of the central things to think about as teachers and as Christians is, has our vision of what the good life is and the hopes and fears that are tied up with that been co-opted by various cultural forces, consumerism, militarism, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And what practices do we enter into as Christians in order to reclaim them in the cases where they have been co-opted? So, I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, ethics is not the living of the good life. It's the asking of questions that make intelligible what a good life actually is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm I'm always fascinated by these conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, at any rate, guys, like I said, I uh, I have to go teach pretty soon, so uh, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, claim guilt for this. I should have been thinking about this earlier, but I didn't until just before we recorded. Uh, it's actually <laughs> time for someone other than Grubs and myself to propose a subject matter. So not unlike the Lock Ace, we're going to leave this episode without a strong sense of what's coming next uh you know check the facebook page uh you know check um yeah really the facebook page is where we're most likely to announce it but either danny anderson or todd peddler will be hosting next time i'm not sure which but we will find out in the meantime while you're waiting for that uh of course visit christianhumanist.org for show announcements for all of our programs visit the various shows each has its own facebook page Email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We're probably not too far at this point from a listener feedback episode, so you can look forward to that. Uh, And this is the one that I always hit. Uh, Please go to iTunes for all six of our shows. Uh, Leave us reviews. If you give those stars, that's what leads people's searches to our shows. That's what lets people get in on the conversation. And again, that's why we do what we do. So please help us out with that. We always appreciate when people point other folks to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Well, like I said, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Uh, This episode will more than likely be edited by Michael Farmer. And so this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of David Grubbs and Todd Pedler saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. (laughs) 